Good afternoon, I'm Rick Truer. I'm the Community Services Director for Congressman Vern Ehlers, and I'd like to welcome you to the January Series 2008. Will you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you in the noon hour of this day, and we thank you for the chance to assemble here freely and to learn more about the world that you've given to us. We thank you for Calvin College, and we're especially mindful today of the loss of Professor Karen Meiskins as she will be laid to rest. We pray that you'll please be with her family, friends, colleagues, and students, and comfort them in this time of loss. May they feel your comfort and your peace. We thank you, too, for our speaker and for the engineers, scientists, astronauts, and support staff at NASA who are working to explore the vast universe that you've created. We pray that you'll please be with Dr. Griffin today. Give him wisdom and clarity of thought, and be with us as we listen. Give us open ears and discerning minds. All this we ask in your name and for your sake. Amen. And now, Professor Randy Brower, Professor of Engineering here at Calvin, will introduce our speaker. Thank you, Rick. Good afternoon, and welcome to today's January series presentation. It is a great honor for me to introduce today's speaker. Since April of 2005, Dr. Michael Griffin has been serving as the 11th NASA Administrator. Earlier in his career, Dr. Griffin served as Chief Engineer and as Associate Administrator for Exploration at NASA. He served as a Space Department Head at Johns Hopkins University. He served as President and Chief Operating Officer of InQtel Incorporated. He taught several aerospace engineering courses, and he authored several technical papers and a textbook on space vehicle design. I don't know how many of you have read that one, but um, to name only a few of his accomplishments. <laughs> I haven't either, sorry. <laughs> Um, Dr. Griffin has earned at least six graduate-level degrees in the fields of physics, engineering, and business. As Administrator of NASA, Dr. Griffin leverages his technical and business background as he oversees a budget of nearly $17 billion. As he leads an agency focused on aviation, space, science, and exploration, and as he spends more hours than he'd like to count in front of Congress at hearings. So I don't envy him on that one. Um, under his direction, NASA has begun the development of systems to return humans to the moon and hopefully to Mars, but all under extremely tight budget constraints. Managing such a complex and important agency is no easy task, but Dr. Griffin has shown he's more than capable. And I'll quote um, Taylor Dinerman, who writes for the Space Review. It just may be that Mike Griffin is the best administrator NASA has ever had. And that's probably true. Uh, Calvin College is grateful to Barnes and Thornburg for underwriting today's presentation. Please welcome NASA Administrator Michael Griffin. I think we need to check Taylor for the use of controlled substances. <laughs> um, I'd like to thank all of you. Uh, for being here today, and to Calvin College and the organizers of, of this very distinguished January series for inviting me to be here with you. It uh, gives me a great excuse to escape from Washington, D.C., as not that I need one. And uh, I do especially want to thank Congressman uh, Ehlers for inviting me to do this, and uh, his staff director, Rick Truer, who just served with the introductions for being here today. As many of you know, Congressman Ehlers is a key member of the House Science and Technology Committee, among his many other duties in Congress, and the Science Committee oversees NASA. I testify before that group on a regular basis, actually did so on quite a number of occasions before I became administrator. And I first met Randy Brower, who just introduced me, when he was an IEEE Congressional Fellow working on Capitol Hill for Congressman Dana Rohrabacher, another senior member of that committee. During Randy's uh, year-long fellowship, he was known for being thoughtful and conscientious, which of course we expect for a professor, and has demonstrated it again today, and thank you for that very nice introduction. My only wish that, is that I could be as articulated in uh, answering congressional questions, uh, as was the uh, late Robert Wilson, who was the co-discoverer of the three-degree Kelvin microwave background radiation that is the remnant of the 14-year-old, 14-billion-year-old Big Bang. Uh, when Dr. Wilson was asked before a committee about what value a new particle accelerator would have in promoting the national security of our country, 
He responded, nothing at all. It only has to do with the respect with which we regard one another, the dignity of men, our love of culture. It has to do with, are we good painters, good sculptors, good poets? I mean all the things we really venerate in our country and are patriotic about. It has nothing to do directly with defending our country except to make it worth defending. I love that answer. Similarly, NASA's activities in climate change research, monitoring our ever-changing sun, studying the physics of the solar flares and their effects on Earth, our missions to other planets, moons, asteroids, and comets in our solar system, as well as our astronomy and astrophysics missions like Hubble, make our country worth defending. Further, I hope that the Space Shuttle, the International Space Station, and our next missions to the moon, this time to stay, are something of which we are all proud. These are the things which make our nation worth defending. I recently read an essay written a few years ago by Michael Crichton, uh, author of quite a number of books, including Jurassic Park and the Andromeda Strain. In that article, Crichton highlighted the work of, of uh, the privately funded uh, Space Camp Foundation. It's an intensive program for kids and adults that teaches them the physics and engineering of spaceflight. Last year, after 25 years of operation, Space Camp graduated its half-millionth camper. In his essay, Crichton tells the story of a 10-year-old boy who was interviewed on TV after graduating. Asked about the future, he spoke of colonies on the moon and trips to Mars, Crichton says. The reporter said, how are you going to get the Congress to pay for it? To which the young boy replied, maybe your Congress won't, but mine will. With your help and American ingenuity and support, we're slowly turning this young man's dreams into reality. At a fundamental level, NASA is in the inspiration business. We're about making our country worth defending, and I'm extremely lucky and very proud to be part of it. It invigorates me to visit a college campus and meet the next generation of physicists and engineers, to hear about what they're doing, to meet the young people who will go on to build our nation's new spacecraft and launch vehicles and discover new things about the Earth, the solar system, the universe, or maybe build our nation's next generation air traffic control system or design advanced aircraft to make air travel safer, cheaper, faster, more environmentally friendly. I just met uh, with some of the future professional engineers and scientists of Calvin College this morning, and, and as always, that's the best part of my day. I, I really enjoy those questions and answers. But the questions make me realize increasingly that I'm two generations removed from the life and world of undergraduate education. And sometimes I'm told that young people today are just not interested in NASA, in the space program, and that my generation can't understand the college students of today. And I did grow up in a very different world in the 1950s and 60s. Today, we have satellite TV, hundreds of channels, 24-hour news coverage, inexpensive jet travel, personal computers and cell phones and instant messaging, and so on. So how could I possibly understand this new generation? Now, I readily admit to being clueless about a lot of popular culture. Uh, but despite that, I've thought about it, and I think the best answer I can give is, you know, you're right. My generation didn't have all those things when I was your age. We invented them. <laughs> it's true. Now, some of you in the auditorium here are of my generation, and, uh, which means you grew up during the Apollo era of the 1960s, uh, a time of NASA's apotheosis. We watched science fiction movies and television shows that made us believe that we, all of us, and not simply a few astronauts, could become space travelers. Arthur Clarke's and Stanley Kubrick's masterpiece of science fiction, 2001, A Space Odyssey, projected onto the screen of our collective human consciousness a future for us where, by now, hundreds of people would be living and working in space stations and towns would exist on the moon. We would be journeying to other planets in the solar system just as our European forebears came to America looking for new beginnings. This vision of our future, at least in that time, proved illusory for our generation for two fundamental reasons. First was the limitations on our economic resources, and the second was the limitations of our technology. The two are, of course, related. 
Neil Armstrong's giant leap for mankind was not a journey that could be sustained without a more concerted investment of time, resources, and energy than the nation was willing to provide after January 20th of 1969. But rather than looking back on past greatness, I would rather learn from history in order to understand our present and predict our future in space. NASA celebrates this year its 50th anniversary, but that doesn't mean that we're due for a midlife crisis. It means that we've reached a milestone to recognize and celebrate, and then it's time to blow out the birthday candles with the wish that we be refreshed and renewed in our approach to the problems we face today and are likely to face in the future. We've been exploring space now for 50 years, but it's been only 50 years. By way of comparison, human beings have been conducting transoceanic voyages for a thousand years or so. So in only the first 50 years of spaceflight, it is actually quite remarkable to realize that NASA's robotic spacecraft have ventured to almost all of the planets in the solar system, that four have actually left the solar system, and 12 men have walked on the moon. We're in the midst of constructing the International Space Station, which will be larger across than a football field and weigh about what the first Mars ship will weigh when it departs. Its development is the largest task ever performed by the civilian agencies of the United States or our international partners. Only military coalitions have undertaken a larger effort. Yet despite the achievements of our nation's first 50 years in space, History books a thousand years from now still must note that the United States of America was not the first country to explore space. Those books will name a nation that no longer exists, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Those books will show that Soviet Union launched the first man-made object into space, Sputnik, in October 57, and that they launched the first astronaut, Yuri Gagarin, in April 61. I was a boy of eight years old at the time of Sputnik, growing up around an army base in Aberdeen, Maryland, and I can still remember quite vividly the fear and embarrassment that our nation felt at that time. You couldn't miss it. It was on the front page of every newspaper in the largest possible type font. The idea that the United States could be beaten to space by any other nation, not to mention by our supposedly backward yet declared adversary, was for almost everyone a galvanizing event. Khrushchev's November 1956 admonition, we will bury you, reverberated in our consciousness. Sputnik shifted the arena of international technical competition to the new frontier of space, and it mattered greatly. One of the national leaders who recognized the importance of Sputnik was a young congressman from Grand Rapids by the name of Gerald Ford, who in 1958 became a member of the House Select Committee on Astronautics and Space Exploration. Over the course of 50 years, this committee has evolved into the House Science and Technology Committee, of whom Dr. Ehlers is now a senior member. But more importantly, this congressional committee, and Congressman Ford in particular, was important in the drafting of the original Space Act that founded NASA, bringing together laboratories and field centers from various other branches of the government, including the Army, the Navy, and the Civilian National Advisory Committee on Aeronautics. When Ford became president 16 years later, he saluted the landings of the twin Viking robotic explorers on Mars, saying on that occasion, our achievements in space represent not only the height of technological skill, they also reflect the best in our country, our character, the capacity for creativity and sacrifice, and a willingness to reach into the unknown. If he'd thought about it, I think he would have echoed Wilson's remark that it was the kind of thing that made our country worth defending. In the summer of 1975, President Ford also spoke via telephone through NASA ground antennas to American astronauts Tom Stafford and Deke Slayton and Soviet cosmonaut Valery Kubasov on board the Apollo-Soyuz spacecraft 140 miles overhead. In the span of only a few years, America went from being behind in the space race to putting 12 men on the surface of the moon, and from competition to the beginnings of a partnership with the then Soviet Union. That collaboration continues to this day. Partnership with other spacefaring nations has become a vital element of the United States' soft power appeal, and over half of all NASA's science missions, closer to two-thirds actually, with over 50 spacecraft operating in space today, involves some form of international collaboration.
Today, 200 miles overhead on the International Space Station, NASA astronauts Peggy Whitson and Dan Towney are living and working in space with Russian cosmonaut Yuri Malachenko. With the space station, NASA and our 15 partners, international partners, have maintained a human foothold in space since October 2000, over seven years now. And we're still learning the hard lessons of how to live and work in space 24-7-365. We're in the middle of space station assembly using the space shuttle between now and 2010 and hope to launch the European Columbus module in two weeks with Space Shuttle Atlantis to be commanded by Navy Commander Steve Frick. The Atlantis will also deliver German astronaut Hans Schlegel as part of the assembly team and leave behind French astronaut Leopold Eihartz on the station, replacing uh, Dan Tanny. We're using the station as a laboratory as a testbed for technologies, techniques, and lessons that will enable future colonies on the moon and trips to Mars. And we're also developing materials and conducting research to benefit us here on Earth. For example, Peggy and Dan recently activated a microgravity science glove box experiment called InSpace. Purpose of this investigation is to obtain fundamental data on the complex properties of a class of smart materials called magnet magnetorheological fluids, or MR fluids. Now, MR fluids are suspensions of micron-sized uh, paramagnetic materials in a non-magnetic medium. Uh, they are thus controllable by a magnetic field, and they can very quickly transition into a nearly, uh, nearly solid state when exposed to a magnetic field, and yet return to a liquid state when the field is removed. Their relative stiffness can be controlled by controlling the strength of the field. So due to the rapid response interface that they provide between mechanical components and electronic controls, um, MR fluids can be used to improve or develop uh, new brake systems, seat suspensions, robotics, clutches, uh, airplane landing gear, and vibration damping systems. Last year, a convention of the AMA endorsed NASA's efforts in human spaceflight in going to the moon, Mars, and beyond because the technology and techniques we've developed for doctors will, quote, undoubtedly yield both projected and unanticipated biomedical breakthroughs. The AMA resolution listed several NASA contributions, including LASIK surgery, laser angioplasty, dialysis machine improvements, and uh, digital cochlear implants. One of the success stories from our work to develop uh, various medical countermeasures is that against kidney stones. Uh, we have a particular incentive there because in microgravity, the human body compensates for the reduced stress on the skeleton by releasing calcium from the bones of our astronauts, making them more prone to developing kidney stones. In order to prevent the formation of these stones, astronauts have been taking potassium citrate, and uh, we're conducting experiments with a new generation of pharmaceuticals with companies like Amgen to test other ways to prevent or reduce uh, this malady, as well as osteoporosis like bone loss and uh, the muscle atrophy that we encounter in zero G. Last September, uh, Elias Zerhouni of the National Institutes of Health and I signed a memorandum of understanding to conduct even more joint medical research on board the station. On the next shuttle flight, STS 122, our astronauts will test a drug called mitodrine with the help of NIH researchers, which will hopefully reduce dizziness caused by a drop in blood pressure that occurs when our astronauts first return to Earth from the zero-G environment of space. Again, our goal is to develop and test new capabilities on board the ISS that cannot be tested anywhere on Earth and that will not only help us by enabling future space missions to the moon, Mars, and beyond, but also benefit life here on Earth. Now, we can't carry out this goal, goal of exploring the solar system by ourselves. We need international collaborators, commercial companies, venture capitalists, and other agencies of the United States government to be part of it. It will take American know-how and can-do attitude. It literally will take the best of the best of the best to turn this goal into reality. In my usual clueless fashion, I had in fact failed to notice until I got surprised with a question from the media that Peggy Whitson is in fact the first woman to command the International Space Station. Peggy has a PhD in biochemistry, having studied at Iowa Wesleyan University College and Rice University in Houston. 
She's a veteran astronaut who, in fact, previously lived and worked for six months on board station back in uh, 02, uh, at that time as the science officer. And yes, our naming convention here with science officer pays homage to uh, Star Trek's Mr. Spock. We do not, however, insist on pointy ears for the job. Peggy uh, literally is one of the best of the best of the best because um, when we look at it, way less than 1% of those who ever apply to be astronauts are selected. Over the years, we've received about 41,000 applications from prospective astronauts, some multiple times, but only 321 individuals have ever been selected. Uh, we, in fact, will select a, a new class in 09. We're looking forward to that. Times have changed from uh, the 1950s and 60s uh, in astronaut selection at NASA. The uh, stereotypical buzz cut test pilot or the white male engineer, unfortunately like me, although I don't have a pocket protector, are no longer representative of the agency. We depend upon the ideas in our people's heads for success, not in the package that contains them. And while I do indeed care on a personal level about the degree of egalitarianism in our society, I am also very pragmatic. If we're going to continue to be preeminent in the world economy, to be a world leader in innovation, science, and technology, uh, to be a leader on the frontier of space exploration and aeronautics, we need the best ideas, hard work, and dedication from all those who would like to be involved with what I consider the be, to be the most exciting enterprise of our time. To explore space, we need people, energy, resources. So let me turn to that for a minute and address a few of the facts and, and some misperceptions about how much the American taxpayer provides for NASA's budget. Certainly NASA is very visible in public, and yet America's annual investment in NASA is less than, and substantially less than, one penny out of every federal dollar. To be more exact, our current budget is six-tenths of one percent of every federal dollar spent. Now, the engineers in the audience, like me, would call this rounding error. But when polled, the average American, the 50 percentile American, believes NASA's budget to be much higher, believes NASA's budget to be 24 percent of the federal budget, which is comparable to that of the Pentagon. In fact, NASA's budget this year is $17.3 billion. We just got our 08 appropriation from the Congress right before Christmas. And the Pentagon's operating budget this year is $459 billion. Out of an overall federal budget, not counting supplementals, that's well over $2.5 trillion. So we're not the tail on the dog, we, we might be as big as a flea on the tail of the dog. But from this small investment over many years, uh, NASA's engineering and scientific capabilities that were built for our nation's space program are now pervasive in our lives. And they're critical to a range of activities that create and provide value. Since the 60s, our research in high bandwidth satellite communications has helped lead to the, def to the development of high-definition satellite TV with uh, news, sports, entertainment, 24 hours a day, anywhere you go. Forty years ago, uh, engineers like me uh, used three pieces of wood and a piece of plastic, we called it a slide roll, to make calculations. I still have mine. I used to have it on the wall of my office and uh, I had it framed and mounted behind a piece of glass that said, in case of power failure, break glass. <laughs> After a while, it no longer made sense because the people coming in had to ask what it was. <laughs> and in the process of explaining it, the, the joke went away. So I took it out. 30 years ago, you could put a thousand transistors on a silicon chip. Today, it's 1.7 billion on a comparable silicon chip. And the cost of the chips has dropped by a factor of 100,000. Now, very few people, and, and these microprocessors underlie everything we do, you know, and, and you know that. You don't need me to tell you that. But you may need me to tell you that the development of the first microprocessors and integrated circuits was born of a competition between Fairchild and Intel in the 1960s 
to build components small enough to fit in the Apollo spacecraft. Almost no price was too high to pay to reduce weight in Apollo, our first venture to the moon. Uh, it's hard to imagine that that investment would have been made for any other purpose, and yet I don't think you could put a value on the American uh, a competitive advantage that the development of integrated circuits has given us. And if you were to put a value on it, it would have to be in the many, many trillions of dollars, uh, way more than we've ever spent on space exploration. We built weather and climate change monitoring sensors and satellites starting in the early 1960s that along with fundamental research and applications of this data improve life every day. I was watching the Weather Channel this morning to see if I had a chance of getting back to Washington tonight with the snow there. Working with the Air Force and the Navy, NASA has improved precision timing techniques with atomic clocks that enabled the development of GPS uh, satellite navigation, which by itself has a consumer market of over 20 billion in sales this year. In every GPS satellite, there is in fact a small correction to its atomic clock to compensate for the effects of general and special relativity uh, that go back to the discoveries by Albert Einstein on the very frontiers of theoretical physics uh, in, in between 1905 and 1915. So the frontiers of theoretical physics are now a practical application today because of spaceflight. In partnership with the FAA, we are developing concepts and technologies to increase the airspace capacity in the United States safely and equitably and efficiently. A key question here is to how to best address when, where, and how and the extent to which we can automate such air traffic uh, and apply them throughout U.S. airspace. But we're not looking only at the airspace, we're also looking at ways to improve the use of airport gates, taxiways, and runways while balancing safety and environmental concerns. Researchers from across the U.S. have, have used our aerodynamics laboratories, wind tunnels, and know-how to develop every single jet fighter used by the Air Force and Navy and to test new commercial jet engines and lightweight composite structures. Again, these things weren't here when I was your age. My generation didn't have them. We invented them. Sometimes our contribution is not to create new technologies, but to integrate various existing capabilities in innovative ways. Last year, we used NASA's air and space capabilities to aid Californians who were fighting the wildfires that ravaged Southern California. Our Earth observing satellites helped monitor the spread of those fires. We also sent an unmanned aerial vehicle equipped with unique infrared sensors to fly over them. Uh, the Icona UAV, which is operated through a cooperative effort between Ames and Dryden Research Centers in California, peered through uh, very heavy smoke and darkness, finding hot spots and flames, and then transmitted that sensor information to a server at the Ames Research Center, where it was combined with Google Earth Maps and then transmitted real-time to the operations centers to provide firefighters with a better understanding of the situation. The quick turnaround made a difference. Information gathered from piloted airplanes normally must wait for the aircraft to land before it can be transmitted, while the UAV that we sent um, had, the, had the fire data on the ground to commanders within moments after its acquisition. Now eventually, and in concert with other agencies, we hope to have an entire network of such sensors which will provide information about natural disasters at every scale, from the ground up to space, aiding responders and hopefully saving lives. In another example, we're helping the poor countries of Central America with the CERVIR, uh, which is Spanish for to serve, uh, a high-tech satellite visualization system that monitors weather and climate, helps to track and combat wildfires, improves land use for city planning and agriculture, and helps local officials respond faster. Meteorologists and other disaster response experts in Central America use SERVIR to see where rain will fall, where flooding will occur, location of forest fires, hurricanes, and tornadoes, and pretty much anything nature can dish out. Most recently, our research brought together radar imagery and other satellite data to help the Dominican Republic respond to flooding in the wake of Tropical Storm Noel. The SERVIR project, along with other acts of, of kindness and charity by the embedded NASA team, was such a success that one of our researchers, a young man named Dan Irwin, actually found himself nominated to be the mayor of the small town of San Andres, Guatemala. Dan respectfully declined. I think he had a day job. But he was touched by the vote of confidence. 
and we're now working with the State Department, NOAA, and other agencies to help provide capabilities like SERVIRE to other regions of the world, like Africa. Again, we're bringing space capabilities to bear to improve people's lives and even save them. But it will take far more than NASA funding to open up the new exciting opportunities we hope to continue finding when we explore and exploit the vantage point of space. We have formed a strategic partnership with the founders of Google to carry out various scientific investors like Google Moon, which is mapping software showing everything we know today about the moon, as well as the use of their Gulfstream 5 to carry out scientific missions such as the campaign to mon monitor the Quadrantan meteor shower that occurred earlier this month. And we're supporting Google's offer of a prize purse of up to $30 million for the first privately funded and developed lander rover to touch down successfully on the moon and carry out various experiments. I, often, uh, I also hope, hope to open up the International Space Station as a national laboratory to commercial ventures like our work with Amgen and other pharmaceutical companies. My hope is that people will be able to experience and benefit from space exploration and scientific discovery and make a profit from it at the same time. That is the American way. It's what has made us what we are. And it's my hope that America, or that NASA will be able to spur and to leverage the capabilities which the commercial sector builds and be able to harness the improved intellectual capabilities coming from our nation's universities and high school students. This is important. It matters very greatly to our nation's future. And that's why, along with Congressman Ehlers and other members of Congress, I'm personally and gravely concerned when I read statistics on how, about how, on average, U.S. students are lagging behind their counterparts in other countries in their knowledge of math and science and engineering. According to a recent report which measures the skills of 15-year-olds in math and science across 30 industrialized nations, American students are trailing many potential com competitors and sometimes trailing badly. On average, U.S. students placed below standard in science behind Japan and Korea, which might not surprise a lot of folks, but also trailing Iceland and Ireland. American 15-year-olds did even worse in pure math, trailing many nations in Asia and Europe. These troubling trends were best and most recently explored by a report rising above the gathering storm by the National Academy of Engineering. One of the first paragraphs in the report captured the situation well, so I will quote it at length. Quote, having reviewed trends in the United States and abroad, the committee is deeply concerned that the scientific and technical building blocks of our economic leadership are eroding at a time when many other nations are gathering strength. We strongly believe that a worldwide strengthening will benefit the world's economy particularly in the creation of jobs in countries that are far less well-off than the United States. But we are worried about the future prosperity of the United States. Although many people assume that the U.S. will always be a world leader in science and technology, this may not continue to be the case inasmuch as great minds and great ideas exist throughout the world. We fear the abruptness with which such a lead in science and technology can be lost and the difficulty of recovering a lead once lost, if indeed it can be regained at all." End quote. This is a sobering assessment. It uh, also cites some alarming statistics. Fifty years ago, almost twice as many bachelor's degrees in physics were awarded in the United States as in 2004. Last year, the United States produced more undergraduates in sports exercise than in electrical engineering. About a third of U.S. students who plan to study engineering when they enter college switch majors before they graduate. As a graduate of several engineering and physics programs, I'd point out they're probably not switching to math or theoretical physics. Today, there are more software engineers in Bangalore, India than in Silicon Valley. In 2000, 38% of all U.S. science and technology PhDs were conferred upon foreign board graduate students, which in itself would not be a problem, but most of them are returning to their home countries. I hope you agree with me that America's economic growth is driven by technological innovation and that societies which foster it become leaders in the world. So as NASA begins its next 50 years, I'm very concerned about our nation's bench strength in carrying out space exploration and other technical endeavors. 
we're still going to need the best of the best of the best, but in more than just the astronaut corps. What I do, what we do, is rocket science. The alarming statistics I've quoted have broad implications for the United States' ability to maintain leadership in today's world. Specific to spaceflight, I'm concerned that America's real and perceived leadership in the standing of the world's spacefaring nations is slipping away. As Hal Gaiman noted in his report on the Space Shuttle Columbia accident investigation a few years ago, quote, previous attempts to develop a replacement vehicle for the aging shuttle represent a failure of national leadership, end quote. This too is a sobering assessment. We've only recently begun developing the new Orion crew exploration vehicle and Ares rockets to ferry astronauts to and from the ISS and, more importantly, to allow us once again to go beyond low Earth orbit to the moon. We plan to retire the shuttle in 2010 after 30 years of what remain experimental flights. However, with current budget projections, our new capability will not come online until 2015. With an operational stand-down like this, I'm gravely concerned that even more highly skilled engineers will simply exit the field, um, as happened at the end of the Apollo program. Worse, between now and then, NASA will pay over $700 million, possibly a good deal more, to the Russian Space Agency to support the International Space Station uh, with their Soyuz and Progress crew and cargo vehicles. Uh, that is our obligation. We signed up to it, and yet now we're having to pay others to carry it out. Other countries, like Malaysia and South Korea, and even certain wealthy individuals are also paying, are already paying Russians for trips to the space station. So 50 years after Sputnik, 35 years after the last American footprint on the moon, I have to ask, who is the currently recognized leader in spaceflight? China has also emerged as one of three independent spacefaring nations. Last year, they demonstrated an anti-satellite weapon against one of their own aging weather satellites, and they launched their first mission to the moon, a robotic mission, last October. In 2008, China plans to launch 17 satellites, they recently announced that, and to conduct their first spacewalk uh, from a crew of three astronauts to be launched following the Beijing Olympics this fall. China is investing heavily in building space capability because they understand the value of these activities as a driver for innovation and a source of national pride in joining the world's most exclusive club. China today not only flies its own Taikonauts, but also has plans to launch about 100 satellites over the next five to eight years. It should be no surprise, especially to those who've read Tom Friedman's book, The World is Flat, or John Cow's Innovation Nation, that in this environment, China is breeding thousands of high-tech startups. The Chinese have adapted the design of the Russian Soyuz to create their own Shenzhou spacecraft. However, any similarity between the two ends at the outer mold line. The Shenzhou spacecraft is both more spacious and more capable. They plan to conduct their first spacewalks, as I said earlier, and their first orbital, operation, uh, orbital rendezvous operations soon and to build their own space station, admittedly very sim much simpler than ours, uh, in, the, in the next few years. And while they've not stated an intention to do so, with the capabilities they're building, Chinese could send a mission around the moon with Shenzhou, just as the United States did with the inspiring Apollo 8 mission back in 1968, almost 40 years ago. China could easily execute that mission with their planned Long March 5 currently under development and reportedly rivaling the capabilities of any expendable vehicle in the world today. I have no doubt that they will have it in use as they planned by 2012 or 2013. I'm pointing out these things, which are matters of engineering capability, because I believe it is important to understand our strategic competitors as well as those with whom we wish to collaborate. We must also understand ourselves and the framework of our real and perceived leadership in a world uh, in the world in a broader context than simply uh, viewed, granted by viewing NASA's six-tenths of one percent of the, of the budget. As John Cow couches it, we are currently facing, his words, a silent Sputnik where, quote, many countries are race racing for a new innovation high ground while our own advantages are showing signs of serious wear, end quote. If you agree with me that our nation is indeed facing a silent Sputnik, then I have another question for you. Why does it take a crisis to get our nation's attention? 
I'm concerned that America's potential as a great nation is withering away due to benign neglect, apathy, complacency, and lack of leadership. That is, we are ignoring a crisis because it doesn't provide a galvanizing moment like the launch of Sputnik. Now, I fully appreciate that there are many distractions in our modern life possibly due to the 24-hour satellite news and entertainment coverage that NASA's technology helped to create. Last summer, just prior to a space shuttle launch, I sat down for an interview with CNN just as one of their producers informed me that they were going to have to cut away from the coverage of the shuttle launch. It seemed that there was breaking news of vital national interest from Los Angeles. Paris Hilton was going to jail. And NASA simply could not compete for the American people's attention against Paris Hilton. That was the moment when I realized just exactly how tough this job really is. I make light of this because it is funny, but there's a, a not very subtle lesson here as well, and that's that our media and our nation are not focusing on what matters most. I believe it is necessary for us, all of us, to discuss openly the founding principles that led us as a nation to embrace space exploration five days ago. A former chairman of the House Science Committee that I've now referred to several times, Congressman Bob Walker from Pennsylvania, framed the issue very, very well in a speech right after Space Shuttle Columbia's loss five years ago. Bob said, quote, for every generation, choices are made that lead to greatness or to mediocrity. And I would ask that all of us, each and every one of us here today, consider our choices and our decisions in how we spend our time, resources, and energy. In his thought-provoking speech, Congressman Walker quoted from the great British statesman, Benjamin Disraeli, who once opined that nations go from bondage to faith, from faith to courage, from courage to freedom, from freedom to abundance, from abundance to complacency, from complacency to dependency, and from dependency back to bondage." End quote. It's all a matter of what each generation in its time here on earth chooses to do. Right now, I will note again, we are dependent upon the Russian space program for assistance in our own. History books hundreds of years from now will note President John Kennedy's choice for America in 1962. I love these, these words. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard, because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is one that we are willing to accept one that we are unwilling to postpone, one that we intend to win, and the others too. It is for these reasons that I regard the decision to last, last year, this is again back in 1962, to shift our efforts in space from low to high gear as among the most important decisions that will be made during my incumbency in the office of the presidency. When, when President Kennedy spoke those words and challenged our nation, NASA had less than 11 hours of experience in space under its belt in the Mercury program, but we had the right stuff. We didn't yet have the Apollo capsules or powerful Saturn V rocket or the lunar lander. We didn't even have computers as advanced as the BlackBerry that I carry around today. In fact, not even close, let alone the Internet. We invented all those things. For every nation, Sorry, for every generation, choices are made that lead to greatness or to mediocrity. Thank you for choosing to spend this afternoon listening to me. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you very much, Mike, for those words that uh, challenge us in many ways. Um, we have uh, several minutes now. Uh, I think Mike wanted to keep his uh, thoughts short so that uh, there would be time to ask questions and uh, get answers from our NASA administrator. Uh, there are two microphones on the um, mezzanine area in the walkway there. And I, if you have a question you'd like to ask, please go to those microphones so that uh, not only we can hear them, but also the people in the remote sites can hear them. Um, and also we ask that if you are going to 
Uh, go to the microphones. Please make it a question um, and not a statement that really is uh, helpful for, I think, all of us. So um, with that, I'm going to let Mike moderate the question and answer session. Sure. As long as I've got a queue on both sides, I'll alternate. If not, I'll just work until a queue is empty. Yes, sir. I think some of us are under the misimpression that the uh, Star Wars technology is part of NASA. I'd like to know about that. The other thing is, are the uh, Star Wars budgets then of uh, presidents and congressmen uh, impinging on the NASA budget? Uh, well, I used to uh, be a pretty high-level official in the uh, strategic missile defense or, or Star Wars program. Um, we added quite considerably to the space technology base of the country in those times, and um, uh, it now forms a, a part of our aerospace technology base. You, you can't buy anything in the space business today which was not influenced by the Star Wars program. Uh, with that said, uh, I, I, I don't comment broadly on uh, the budgets of other agencies, but I think it is safe to say uh, that given the separation of defense and civil space oversight, both in the White House and in the Congress, uh, that the budgets of strategic missile defense are not impinging upon those at NASA. Uh, my budget battles are um, within domestic non-defense discretionary accounts, and of course strategic defense, missile defense, is, uh, is in the military account, so they, they are not compet competitors. Uh, yes, sir. Are you able to tell us anything about the plans for going to Mars, uh, when it might happen, how uh, in it might happen, and will you please dispel the awful rumor that, well, we can get men there, but we don't know how to bring them back? <laughs> well, we won't send people to Mars until we know how to bring them back. Uh, I'm just assured, I'm, I'm certain of that. Um, I have examined that question you asked pretty carefully, when can we do it? And uh, of course that depends on, on decisions about politics and budget for, for the next several decades to come. But if we were to continue to receive in constant dollars a budget about like what we receive today, so no political miracles either up or down, uh, we would be able to voyage to Mars for the first time in the mid-2030s. Uh, we don't have specific plans for that. We're, uh, we must walk before we can, can run again. Um, we dismantled a space transportation architecture back in the early 1970s that we had built in the 60s at, at great cost and labor, and uh, we have to recreate that. Uh, there's not much difference in the space transportation required to go to Mars versus going to the moon, but right now we can't go to the moon. So when we recreate that capability, uh, learn how to live and work on the moon, learn how to live and work in the space station, uh, then we will have amassed all the knowledge that, that we require in order to go to Mars. So then it will be time for more specific plans. Yes, sir. The growing problem of a decline of engineers, what steps do you propose that the American economy country takes to alleviate those problems? Well, um, there's an old joke, you know, that, that's a, a riff on the, uh, when you care enough to send the very best, I think you're supposed to send flowers. Well, I always used to say, when you care enough to send the very best, send money. Uh, in the 19, late 50s and 60s, when we were concerned about American competitiveness in space, and not, not even just broadly in technology, uh, we spent, it was a national goal to spend money, first of all, doing exciting things in, in space and in medicine and in engineering and every aspect of it, in particle physics and on and on and on throughout our economy. We spent money as a nation on the frontiers of science and technology in space. We spent money uh, on graduate fellowships, undergraduate scholarships. We spent money at every level of our education establishment encouraging people to take these things up as careers. So we attacked the problem in both ends. We did exciting things, and then we made money available to young men and women to join us in doing those exciting things. Uh, we're not doing enough of either one of those things right now. 
it's obvious that you care a great deal about, you know, the future education and direction of, uh, you know, the country in terms of its technical abilities. You'd be hard put to find somebody who likes more, uh, who likes education more than, than I demonstrably have. As, as a person with an engineering background, um, I've seen federal funding cut for programs where I was working with um, first generation uh, low income students. And I would like to know, um, in regards to the current situation with the um, added background checks for engineers in, in non-classified positions, how we're supposed to encourage them when we would potentially be invading their privacy? Um, I get that question a lot. I certainly understand your feelings on it. Um, um, let me make a couple points. Uh, the request for, there are two ways to view that question. One is that you're invading the right of privacy to a civilian contractor employee um, in order to allow him to work on government stuff. The other perspective on it is that the taxpayers of the nation would actually like to know something about the background of the people who are working on stuff they have purchased. Now that latter view has been in place for government civilians since 1953 in the Eisenhower administration. Every government employee has to uh, submit to a background check. Not, not every government employee necessarily has his background checked, but he, he must consent to that uh, at the discretion of the government. Post 9-11, the Congress uh, made the determination. It was not the President that made this determination, as some like to say. The Congress made the determination that it was necessary uh, to exercise tighter scrutiny of those who are allowed to touch federally funded hardware and software. The uh, President, the administration thought about it for quite some time, the Justice Department, the Office of Personnel Management who deals with these things, and came up with a set of recommendations to implement congressional direction. It it's goes by the slang uh, acronym of HSPD-12 for Homeland Security uh, Presidential Directive 12. Uh, the fundamental point of it is now that contract employees who are involved with government programs touching government hardware or software will be treated like civil servants and must submit to the possibility of a background check. Um, it is not the view that their privacy is being invaded, rather the view is that those of us as taxpayers who are funding this work are entitled to know who is doing it. Remote question. Yes, um, we have several. Uh, would you like to read that? Out? Sure. Just take one of the remote questions. But there will be time for more questions after that. Still have a couple minutes. Um, question from a viewer in uh, Wittensville, Massachusetts says We have several first robotics students from the Wittensville Christian School watching the lecture by webcast and, and some here at Calvin. What recommendation can you make to prepare robotics students for a career in science and technology? Well, if you're, if you're specifically interested in robotics, as a good number of my friends are, then the right disciplines are uh, mechanical and electrical engineering and software engineering, um, and, and as best you can possibly do it, a combination of those. Because robotics is inherently electromechanical, artificial intelligence, which means software, uh, and, the, and the various cognitive disciplines. I mean, it's fascinating stuff and uh, educate yourself as broadly as possible in those disciplines. And uh, believe me, robotics is a, uh, an enormously, an enormous and enormously growing field in this country, and if you do those things, you'll do well. Uh, and probably, th probably that was the best of those, so let me uh, go back to uh, uh, over, yes ma'am. I often see in science that there's a growing cooperation between nations with the bigger projects, bigger telescopes that we need to see further, bigger particle accelerators with the CERN facility being built. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about why is it important or useful to look at sort of scientific and technological advances as a competition rather than an opportunity to cooperate more broadly. Um, I, I, my own view is that the right way to look at those things is both. 
Um, there is an enormous economic value to human beings and to human society and the, the standards with which we live uh, from, uh, that, that accrues from uh, using the engine of competition. People like to compete. People like to be the best. They like to excel. They like to stand out. It's rooted in us. We are the survivors of prior generations of successful competitors. Um, in itself, it's great, and like almost everything else, it can be carried to excess. When competition gets to the, to the level where people are behaving unethically or, or conducting actual wars, then it has gone too far. Um, but in itself, it's not bad. And of course, we are, we are a, a local, a regional, a national, a human society. So human beings from the first have collaborated and competed. And the it brings out the best of us when we can appropriately combine those two. So really big projects uh, seem to work best when we can engender some form of collaboration. Oftentimes, however, we use the engine of competition to decide who gets to collaborate. Two-thirds of our science missions are international in scope. It is actually a minority science mission at NASA that flies with just U.S. instruments. And, and we conduct fiercely competed competitions among scientists or engineers doing engineering experiments to determine who gets on board. And we get great science that way. We get world-class science that way. Our entire human spaceflight program is international and collaborative. I mean, the space station is the current U.S. human spaceflight program, the development of the space station, and from its first, uh, it has been a U.S.-led coalition of, of 15 or so nations. I absolutely believe that when we return to the moon the next time, it will not be a U.S. mission. It will be an international mission, again, a coalition led by the United States. Uh, those are good things to do. Those are terrific things to do because they allow us to generate an opportunity for other people to partner with us in, in an enterprise that everyone loves. There is enormous value to the United States in doing inspirational, visionary things that everybody wants to be a part of and, and to lead those things. And, and I, couldn't, I could not and do not support it you know, any more strongly. I mean, it's, it's a great thing to do. But competition has a role, and, and we should use it, I think. So thanks for your question. It's a good one. I'm told one more. Yes. Uh, this is a quick question. You've talked a lot about uh, priorities for NASA. I was wondering if you could comment on the problem of uh, maintaining those priorities through different administrations and election cycles. Well, it's, it, it is always a problem in, uh, in our form of representative government to maintain um, uh, I'll, I'll just say institutional priorities in any agency through, you know, elections. We have a congressional, we turn the Congress over every two years and the presidency over every four, and, and it can be tough. Now, that said, uh, for NASA, uh, I, I think most people recognize that, uh, again, in the words of the Columbia Accident Investigation Board, that uh, the pre the, they were talking about the loss of Columbia, but speaking more broadly and said the present situation resulted from, from three decades of, of uh, lack of a strategic plan for what the nation wanted NASA to do. I'm not quoting exactly because I don't have it in front of me, but that was the essence of the comment. Three decades. And they stated right out that it was a failure of national leadership, both congressional and presidential level. I mean, 30 years takes you through 15 Congresses and, you know, half a dozen presidencies. And nobody stepped up until we lost the, the Columbia. President Bush did step up, and so did the Congress, which in December of 05 signed into legislation what I think is the best authorization act NASA has had since the first one in 1958. Um, I really don't think um, a new president is going to once again change course for NASA. That was last done under the Nixon administration. It was not good. I'm sure you're surprised. <laughs> it was not good. Um, 
this president and particularly this Congress, because again, presidents propose, but Congress disposes. This Congress signed us up to a great strategic plan. I just don't see a new president or a new Congress coming in and deciding to wake up in the next morning and let's have a new space program. Um, they might adjust our funding a little bit up or down, depending on who's in charge, but that's less important than preserving the right direction. Money spent going in the wrong direction is always bad, no matter how much of it they give you. So, thanks, that was the last one. Thanks for having me here today. Thank you, Mike. Just one quick note, due to the speaker's uh, tight schedule, he will not be able to meet people in the hallway. Um, so, but thank you all for coming and uh, have a great day. Thanks. <laughs>